This morning, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we'll pick up in the 18th verse this morning, and a study I've entitled Discerning His Deity. And as we begin this morning, you have the one question that is the most important question that everyone on this earth will have to answer one day. This is the sum and the substance of what it means to be a Christian. Because if you do not get the answer to this question right, you're lost. Because from the Bible's perspective, there is a very specific Jesus who is the Christ and he is the Lord of all who are saved. If you do not get that right, not Jeff, Scripture says you're not one of God's kids. You have to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You can't simply acknowledge that he was a historical figure. You can't say that he was simply a prophet. You can't agree that he was a great man. None of those things ultimately bring you into a right relationship with God. Jesus asked twice this question, first to the multitude and then to his own disciples. And Peter got it right. And so this morning, discerning his deity, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Lord, these words that were the eyewitness accounts of those who traveled with you, those who met with you, those who ministered with you. And so, Lord, this morning as we study your word, just make us alive to receive it. Help us to understand and to know, uh, God, what is your perfect will for us this day? And as we hear, Lord, help us to be doers. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for this time, God. Please touch us with the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And it happened that while as he was alone praying, Jesus very frequently took some time alone, got away from the disciples, the guys, the crowds, and talked to his father, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, and notice this is the first of two times he asked the same question, Who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and said, and this was commonly what was believed at the time. There were many people talking, and and I will say to you that you yourself can do this experiment on your own. Ask people, who do you believe that Jesus is? And strangely enough, you're going to get some of these answers from many people. Not a lot's changed with that regard. And in fact, if you talk to a Muslim, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, if you talk to a Mormon, if you talk to a Hindu, you talk to a Buddhist, you are going to get these types of answers. Most everyone believes that there is no rationale for saying that Jesus was not at least a historical figure. There's too much emphasis in the world upon who he is in a historical sense to say, well, he never existed. And so notice what they say. 
And so the disciples answering for the multitudes whom they had no doubt talked to. And so they answered and said, John the Baptist. That was what Herod believed, right? Well, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say Elijah, one of the prophets. And others say one of the prophets of old that is risen again. So basically they're saying, well, we believe that Jesus is kind of like one of these people that we've already experienced. A prophet of some type. A fourth teller of the truth of God of some type. A really great guy of some type. Someone that represents godly ideals. Can I tell you that that acknowledgement is not enough to save you? It's not. You have the wrong Jesus, you are not saved. Again, Jesus declared that, not Jeff. He said, I am all that I am. I am the way. Single way. I am the singular truth. I am the singular life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. You've got to have the right Jesus. It's not just uttering a name that begins with J and ends with S. It's not acknowledging that he was a prophet. He was a prophet. It's not acknowledging that he uh, lived a different life, things that we can't explain, that he did miracles. Do you know that believing in the miracles of Jesus cannot save you? They can't save you. Others say one of the prophets of old that's risen again. And then he said to them, notice how he answers the question. Peter's going to answer for at least himself. But who do you say that I am? This is important, guys. He's saying to the disciples. And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. He didn't say miracle worker. He didn't repeat what the crowd said. A prophet. He said the anointed Messiah of God. That is a very unique, specific title that is drawn from the sum and the total of everything that the prophets in the Old Testament had said. That's fulfilling Daniel. That's fulfilling Zechariah. That's fulfilling Isaiah. That's fulfilling the Psalms of David that spoke prophetically. That is everything that your Bible says about Jesus, who would be the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, Isaiah said he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? You, you see... Very specifically, this is the only answer that you can give and actually be right with God. Now, as you look at this, that seems very exclusive and very narrow. I would remind you that is exactly what Jesus declared. He said, narrow is the way that leads unto salvation, and few there are who find it. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there go on it. And in our day of religious tolerance, in our day of inclusiveness, 
in our day of trying to justify everything in an ecumenical sense, trying to draw together all of the faiths of the world, the church is making a grave mistake when it dumbs down Jesus and makes him less than the one answer to this question. And I believe there will be a price to pay for it for pastors who preach that way. You see, that's why I can tell you conclusively that Mormons have the wrong Jesus. Because they believe that he is literally the spirit brother of Lucifer. That he actually was a physical being. He was one of Elohim's one of Elohim's many spirit children, and in fact so much so that they declare him to be the elder brother. Jesus is one of one. He's not one of many. Wrong Jesus. I can tell you that Christian scientists have the wrong Jesus. They believe that he's the Christ ideal. That he's the one man that fulfilled the basic tenets of what God would want for us. Why am I saying that? You need to get the answer to this question right, or you're in eternal peril. And that's why Jesus asked. He's going to say something that seems strange when he says it next. But I would tell you it's not strange at all. Because there's something radically missing from the plans of God at this point. Jesus, in fact, has not said to tell us die, it is finished. He's still in the process of conveying that truth to them, and he will do so with the very things he's going to say next. He is going to suffer, exactly as Isaiah declared, exactly as David declared, exactly as Zechariah declared. He is going to do those things to the letter, but they're not done yet. And so rather than get everyone confused about who the Messiah is with this incomplete picture of just miracles and wonderful teaching and truth, he says, guys, don't say anything yet. Notice how it continues. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell no one these things, saying, the Son of Man, that was Daniel's name for for the coming Messiah, amen? The Son of Man, Daniel declared that. Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. And that is now going to become his focus. The Galilean ministries are basically finished at this point in time. And so Jesus begins to to head towards Jerusalem, if you will, And then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, Guys, this is not going to be easy. This is not just going to be you blurting out my name and everything's going to be completely transformed and changed. You are going to need to follow me. That's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. Being a Christian is a little tough in this world, isn't it? Not all the time. And I don't want to steal anybody's joy here this morning, so I'm going to try not to do that. But being a Christian can be tough, amen? Because you actually have to live your life according to what God's Word says, which means you're going to be in direct conflict with the world, amen? You're going to not be able to do the things that the world does, especially not do them the world's way. 
You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow Him. You're going to raise your children differently. You're going to respond differently to your spouse. You're going to live in love even when you want to hate with everything that's within you. It's going to be tough. You're going to have to live your life in such a way that when you wake up every morning, you have resigned to know Christ and Him crucified for the remission of your sins. Amen? That means you do stuff His way. You can't declare the name of Christ and then live as you please. You are now a child of God. It's a cross to bear. It's your cross. It's my cross. Lots of wonderful things come from being a Christian. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm delighted to live as a Christian in this world. But it is challenging upon occasion. I, like you, wake up in the morning sometimes and go, you know, it would be a whole lot easier if I wasn't doing this ministry thing. Pastors think those things too. <laughs> Took my lovely wife for dinner last night down to Palm Springs. We didn't do Valentine's Day on Friday because we were busy, so we did that. And I'm like, you know, when you start to drive down the road, you go, man, it'd be kind of nice to live here. It's 71 degrees during the winter all the time here. <laughs> you know, you think those things. Then you go, yeah, but these people are all lost. This is, they have, Jesus said, they have what they're going to get. And so he says, notice how it continues. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Get the contrast? It's the exact opposite of the world, isn't it? It is the diametrically polar opposite to the world's way of thinking. You need to lose yourself to be great in the kingdom. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? You see, that was our little trip to Palm Springs last night. I had a wonderful dinner, by the way. But what profit it a man if you were to gain all that stuff and never come to terms with the question, who is Jesus? You see, you could have everything. You all maybe didn't know this. I know I didn't know this. Our president is in Palm Springs right now. And so we're driving down Bob Hope Drive, going to this restaurant. We know how to get there. I've used Google Maps. I've seen it. I know I'm going to turn left and then right, and this is how I'm going to get there. And as I'm driving down Bob Hope Drive, I get to, it says Gang Interdiction Task Force, and the road's blocked. And I'm like, what gangs in Palm Springs? What, you know, kangaroo rat chasers or what? I don't know what that means. And I, so they make you turn, and they don't tell you where you're going, because they've got, in case you don't know this, whenever the president goes anywhere, there is basically about a two or a three square mile area that is cordoned off wherever he is so that people can't shoot missiles and things like that at him. So, uh, we're driving down, and we go around, and I'm like, man, you talk about having clout. It closed down the busiest street in all of Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage. You're driving down it, and you, know, you, see, and you get there, and one dude, because he's there, you can't use the road. Thinking, how come they do that for me? They knew we were going to dinner. What profited a man if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? And I'm not saying our president isn't saved. I'm simply saying you can have everything and still have nothing. 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, notice this, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. You see, Jesus is coming back one day. Amen? And he's going to come in glory. Unreviled glory of heaven. There will be nothing that's going to shine brighter, nothing that's going to dim it. When he peeks his head through the clouds and is on that white steed coming back, it's going to be his glory. For the Lamb of God has prevailed, your Bible says. Who is worthy to open the scrolls, says the King of kings and Lord of lords. To him alone it has been given. He's coming with his own glory one day. He's putting this into a very clear perspective. You're either in or you're out. You've got to answer the question. And you've got to have the right answer to the question. If you believe in such things, when you get to heaven, they're not going to ask you how much money you gave to the church. If there's a little committee, I don't think so. I think it's just going to be your in or out. But if, if you for a moment think on this, when you get there, it's not going to be, well, how faithful were you in church attendance? Did you read entirely through the Bible? Did you have a King James Bible? <laughs> None of those questions come in your way when you get there. Who do you say that I am? That's it. That's the entrance exam. That's the whole enchilada to get to heaven. Who is Jesus? And he says, concluding, and in his father's and his of the holy angels, that, that glory that comes only from heaven. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. And so our first part this morning, what's Jesus really doing? What's he saying? Where is he going? Important again, as I've shared with you, that you read all four gospel accounts, and I want to take you to where Jesus is. Matthew 17 declares this in verse 13, and now same passage of Scripture, but from Matthew's perspective. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? It's the same question. It's the same period of time recorded from Matthew's view. This is the synopsis of the Gospels. This is the synoptic way that they're assembled. And they say same answer. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Throw in another prophet. That's what the people were saying. But he was in Caesarea Philippi. The Lord, if you read the Gospel accounts, had traveled to Titan and, and or, or Tyre and Sidon on the coast, basically in modern-day Lebanon. He'd come down the coast to Decapolis, and he'd set his face towards the pr frontier of the Promised Land. And so where he stopped, Matthew says, is Caesarea Philippi. That would be in the north. It's one of the, the Herods, Herod Philip, lived in that area, and that was where his castle was. That's where his fortress was. That's the photo that you're looking at there. And so Caesarea Philippi, it's about 1,150 feet or so above sea level. Sea of Galilee is below sea level. So it's up. It's in the foothills leading into Lebanon and modern-day Syria. And so Jesus was there. And this is important because people often debate, and I want to just clear it up for you, and whether you believe that the Lord was transfigured one place or another isn't getting you into heaven. What's the question? Who is Jesus? So I want to give you a little bit of a, 
a preview here. When you get to Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is the source of the Jordan River. The River Dan flows from there. That's the main tributary to the Jordan River. Uh, when you're there, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And there in that region of northern Israel, directly not more than 10 miles away is Syria, and not more than 5 miles away is Lebanon. Uh, in, that, in that area, the Lord Jesus is spending some time with his disciples. So when people say that Jesus was transfigured on Mount Tabor, that's about 65 miles south. So it kind of doesn't really fit. And why am I telling you this? because Mount Hermon is actually probably a more likely place, or at least in that region of the world, because that's where Jesus was. It says, we're going to see it, that he went up onto a high mountain, and he was transfigured. And so Mount Hermon today is kind of a, it's a battleground. It was captured by the Israelis during the 67 war. It was fought over again in the Yom Kippur War of 73, and up on top of it, you can actually kind of see them if you look really closely there in the middle of that photo, that is an Israeli listening post. It's home of the, some, some of the most advanced electronic warfare capability in the world. The Israelis can view all of Syria from there, all of Lebanon from there, and the entire nation of Israel to the south. And so I think that it makes more sense that Jesus was actually someplace in this region of the world as opposed to the, the Catholic version that it was Mount Tabor, and they have a convent on the top of that mountain in Israel today. And so the River Jordan actually flows out of a cave there in, in Banyas, and it is a very, very, very beautiful place. Uh, as, you, as you descend into the valley, the, the river actually comes right out of a mountain. It literally is underground, and then it becomes above ground and begins to travel down to the Sea of Galilee. And so this is the area, because it says in Matthew's Gospel, he was in Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea Philippi. This is exactly where it was. There are ruins there today. You can wander through them. Most of the Herod's palace is actually below ground because at that time when it was built, there were a number of caves there. And in fact, the river comes out of one of them. And so it could have been any one of Herod's places that Jesus was referring to about uh, these, these guys who ruled Israel. And so Herod's fortress at Masada. Uh, the Herods built all kinds of very, very wonderful monuments to themselves, basically. And so Caesarea Philippi was one of them. Uh, Herod's fortress at Masada was another. Uh, that, that is the view looking north. And you can see how far that is because in the distance are the foothills leading up to the mountains that would be in Lebanon and also in Syria. So it's a long ways away from where... Uh, Jesus would have been at that time. And that fortress is still there. You can wander around, and actually the tile work on the floor is still there, tile work on the walls, and several inscriptions that say this is the palace of Herod the king, Herod Antipas, uh, in this particular thing, in this particular uh, grouping. And so the Lord begins to say to us some very unusual things about himself in this passage. Firstly, we see him in prayer. Notice verse 18. The Lord is constantly in prayer. If the Lord's constantly in prayer, I would encourage you to constantly be in prayer. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more so do we need to pray? Amen? King of kings, Lord of lords, God incarnate in human flesh prayed. We need to pray. Because I believe sometimes we lack power because we do not pray. Sometimes we lack provision because we do not pray. Sometimes we lack purpose because we do not pray. We kind of go through life and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's right, I'll ask God now. 
needs to be step one. Okay, If it was step one for Jesus, what did he do when he picked his disciples? He prayed. What does he do in the garden when he's going to be crucified? He prayed. What does he do here when he's going to display the glory of God? He prayed. Please pray. Take up a prayer life. The Lord second turns to the attention to who, who am I? Who do people say that I am? The answer was immediate. I want you to notice this. They immediately, well, they think you're John the Baptist or a prophet. They think you're somebody, but they don't really know who. You, you need to understand who the person of Jesus Christ is. He's not just Jesus. Yehoshua. That was his earthly name. God is salvation. He's also the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the great I am. He's the Messiah of old. He's the promised one of the Jewish people. He's all those things. He's not just some representation that everybody can kind of relate to. He actually is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So he says, this is who I really am. You see, they had all heard him speak with authority. They, they had all been there when he healed people and fed them miraculously. Jesus had done all kinds of wonderful things. That's one of the reasons that experience in church can be deceiving. You can see all kinds of miraculous things, but if the miraculous things don't lead you to Jesus is the Christ of God, you got the wrong Jesus. And we don't want people to get the wrong impression about who Jesus is. Because it is at his name that people are saved. It's believing in him. And again, I want to be a little easy on everyone. They hadn't seen everything. They certainly weren't carrying around Bibles going, Oh, well, look, what did he say? What did Galatians 1? Yeah, let's look over here. They couldn't do that. And so it was word of mouth. And most people heard what they heard about Jesus by somebody else telling them. So he says... Who do people say that I am? Because this is what you're going to have to convey to them later. That was the biggie. That's what they would need to know and be able to share. Who is he? That's why he filled in the details, by the way, about who he was. And he does that very, very, very passionately. Notice Peter's great confession here. He begins a new line of teaching. Up to this point, he's been kind of wandering around Galilee, going and healing people and touching their lives and ministering to sick. All that type of thing, amen? That's what we've seen up to this point. It's now going to shift very passionately. He says, the Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and raised on the third day. You see, he hadn't been telling them that yet. That's the real message. You see, everybody likes to go to a big barbecue. Amen? Every time we have food, we have twice as many people show up on Wednesday nights. Okay? People like to eat. Show up. We're going to have food out there. Rick and Mary are just burning the beef, going after the food. People show up. But, oh, you're going to preach that Jesus guy? Man, I have got to go have a root canal. I forgot about it. They do them at night now, and so we're going to have root canal the whole family. Because you're going to preach Christ. You're going to tell them about Jesus. You're going to equate the things that we do here in this church to Jesus. It's going to be about Jesus. As soon as you begin to do that, you lose them. People like to hear the stories. They like slides. They're like, oh, wow, that's what Mount Hermon looks like. Oh, yeah. We could probably get 500 people to go, oh, Jeff's going to do a slideshow on Mount Hermon. 
Tell him about Jesus? Not quite so popular. Especially when he's going to suffer and he's going to die. You see, he was the Christ of God from the disciples' perspective. Lord, you're invincible. I mean, you're the Christ of God. That's what Peter said. That's not going to happen to you. Remember what he actually goes on to say? Oh, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to lop off Malchus's ear. They're never taking you, Lord. We're going to deal with that right now. He had forgotten what he had been told in Caesarea Philippi. Look, I came to do this. This is the real plan. The miracles just testified of who I am and what I can do, that I actually am God. But God needs to die. If God doesn't die, your sins aren't taken care of. If Christ isn't the propitiation for your sins, the price paid, if you're not justified by the blood of the Lamb, then your sins remain. He had to die. Actually more important than His miracles, wasn't it? Far more important than His miracles. You you see, from their perspective, they're they're thinking, well, he, He can stop the Sanhedrin. I mean, they're just a bunch of guys, you know? I mean, he can deal with the chief priests. That's that's not that big a deal. I mean, Annas and his friends there—they're not—they're kind of small potatoes compared to the King of Kings. You see, they didn't get it, and people still don't get the Jesus that died on Calvary's cross for mankind's sin. It's well, you know, how could that happen? And yet, Jesus focuses in on it. He would be slain. He could have just swept aside all those puppets, if you will, but he didn't do that. He submitted to Pilate. He submitted to Annas. He submitted to the Roman crucifixion. He submitted to death on the cross because he said, Into my hands, your hands, Father, I surrender my spirit. Amen? And he yielded up his spirit. In other words, it wasn't taken from him. He gave it away. Jesus was in full control. Luke then gives us the Lord's perspective on these things. Notice this. The Lord took the disciples another step further. He wants to drive this point home. And I want to tell you, it's kind of what I'm doing right now. Most of you don't probably even need to hear this. I think you know what I'm saying. But it is for you to pass along, because don't let people believe that Jesus Christ is some ethereal being that you can make up whoever you want, and that's your Jesus. There are a lot of people that like the miracle-working Jesus. There are especially a lot of people that like the loving Jesus, the one that cradled the children and put them in the midst of the disciples. But how many of them loved the one that said, guys, you're going to suffer too? Mm, Not quite as popular. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the Lord's perspective. It was a cross for him and a cross for them, right? Cross each. Jesus is going to be hung on one, and we're going to hang on another, metaphorically speaking. In other words, you're going to have things in your life that you're going to like, man, I don't like this. I gotta, I, I, I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I kind of like the way my old mind used to work. I'm, I'm pretty well attuned to those things. I, I'm not sure I want to change. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. You see, it's in the giving away. It's in the serving. Very, very, very tough Jesus to follow in that regard, isn't it? 
It is for me. I don't know about you guys. But for me, that's hard. You know what? Sometimes I don't like being forgiving. Sometimes I don't like being kind when people have been mean to me. Sometimes I'd like to just let them have it with both barrels. Amen? You just need to grow up. You know, I think those things. It's like, do you have a Bible? Read it. You, know, you, you go through things like that. All of us do. But I have to pick up my cross and go, you know what? Jesus wouldn't say that to him. Jesus would figure out another way to communicate that truth and love on him. Well, I don't want to look. Well, you have to. It's part of the deal. You see, that's the Lord's perspective on it. They were disillusioned. They looked at it like, oh, no, we don't want to live that way. Notice the the promise for them that they do it, though. I tell you the truth. Verse 27. There will be some standing here who won't even taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I think he's referencing actually what's going to happen next, which is the commonly known as the transfiguration or glory on, on the mount. And now it came to pass in about eight days after these things that he took Peter and John. And so he's in the region of Caesarea Philippi about eight days later. And I'll get to the supposed contradiction that's found in Matthew and Mark in just a second. But he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. So now the real prophets are back for a time. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Evidently, God made it pretty well known in heaven what was going to happen with Jesus. Because the prophets knew it. And of course they were waiting at that time in Sheol, waiting for the finished product to happen at the cross. And so I think it was pretty widely known in spiritual circles what Jesus was up to. And Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And two men stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, you just have to love Peter. You really do. You have to love Peter. Because Peter can come up with just the lamest things at just the wrong time. Master, it's good for us to be here like they were something special. And I don't know exactly what he's thinking. And so, yes, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a liberty here. But I believe that Peter was actually off the mark a little bit. Well, it's good that we're here. You know, after all, I mean, we're your guys. You know, we're the dudes. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you. So here's how I know he was wrong. One for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Scripture says Peter was a little bit lame. Like, duh. So we're going to have one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Basically, he was saying, well, you guys are kind of all the same. He was actually agreeing with the crowd, wasn't he? To some degree. Now, we also know that he made a profession of faith, so it wasn't totally true. But he is making kind of an equivalence there. It's like, well, we'll just build three stacks of rocks, and this will be Moses' stack, and this will be Elijah's stack, and here's Jesus. maybe they'll put an extra rock on Jesus' stack. I don't know. We'll make three tabernacles. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. 
And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. And so this is commonly known as the transfiguration on the mount. That's how most of us understand it. And so Jesus is with uh, three of his key disciples. You'll notice in Mark and Matthew that they use six days, and I'll just explain this very quickly to you. It's not a contradiction at all. When we talk about six days or eight days and we use weekends in between, you can either use inclusive counting, in other words, both days on either end, or you can use the six that lie between, and that's all this is. It's an understanding that if you took from Sunday to, say, a Monday, how many days are in between? You could use that number, or you could use the two days on either end. How many days were there? And So he simply says, about eight days. I believe he was simply just saying that it happened from here to here. There were two days on either end, and he picked those up. Matthew and Mark did not, and used six. And so Jesus takes these chosen three guys aside and has this vision they heard a voice from heaven. If you read Peter's letters, and there in Second Peter in the first chapter, he recounts this whole story. And what he says there is, We heard this voice which came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. There in verse 18. So as far as Peter's concerned, they heard the voice of God. It wasn't some mysterious event that couldn't be explained. It was explained. He also said in verse 16 that they were eyewitness to the majesty of the Lord and that they would speak of his glory. So if you read Peter's account of this event, he said that it was definitely Jesus. So does it really matter whether this happened on Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor? Mount Tabor is further in the south. It's actually probably further on foot than six-day travel, so I lean toward some place in the region of Mount Hermon myself personally. Also, Mount Tabor is only about 1,900 feet high. Mount Hermon's almost 10,000 feet high. It's like mid-9,000. It's 9,500 feet, so it's very tall. That's why it has snow on it. Mount Maron is used as well. It's only about 39. So I just think that Mount Hermon is a more a logical high mountain, if you will. What does Jesus say in these things? And I want to just wrap this up. So it doesn't matter to me whether you pick one of those two mountains. The fact of the matter is Jesus went with three of the disciples and he was transfigured before them. And some pretty amazing things happened. Interesting words that Luke uses here in verse 29. He says that Jesus is countenance was altered. He uses a a very specific Greek word here when it's translated, and it is the Greek word heteros. And of course, we use the term heterosexual. It means one of a different kind. Amen? A man is not a woman. A woman is not a man. We say heterosexual. The reason he uses that word is when Jesus was transfigured, he was not a person He was something different. He was not one of the same kind. He was one of a different kind. There was something so radically different about Jesus that it appears that the glory that he left in heaven, the glory that he didn't use while he was here on this earth, the glory that created the universe and everything in it for a short period of time once again was visible to these three disciples. He says he was transfigured. He shone as the sun. They'd never seen anything like it because there wasn't anything like it. 
That's why the book of Colossians declares that he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the preeminent one. He's one of one. That's why I can also tell you that many cults have the wrong Jesus because he's usually one of many. He's one of one. He is a a completely different order, if you will. We look at things, monkeys, man, goats and gophers, you know, God and man. Very different, amen? It appears that for a moment, the glory of the God that was in heaven before the foundations of the earth were laid was before them. And so these two prophets show up. First was Moses, the second one was Elijah. And they're somewhat important, but I think I will, I will just leave you with this. When you look at Moses and Elijah, there are a couple of things that are, that are important. They represented the law and the prophets. So you have on one hand the law and everything that was done for the Jewish people prior to the coming of the prophets. The prophets came because the people wouldn't listen to the law. That's why God sent the prophets. And so the prophets coming later spoke of those things that they were supposed to be doing in a way that they could understand. Look, the law said this, you're doing this. So he gives them everything that they had known in these two guys as God's dealing with mankind. Gave them all of the law, all of the prophets. And in doing so, he also gives us a couple of different types of people because you, in Elijah, you have a little bit of a glimpse of what the rapture is going to be like. Amen? And he was not. He disappeared. He was translated into glory. In Moses, you remember what happened to Moses? Moses, because he smote the rock, because he was punished for his sin, he did not enter into the promised land, and so he was buried on Mount Nebo. And in fact, it says that the angel Michael contended for him over his body, and so he remained buried. So you kind of see the works of the flesh, and you see the works of the Spirit. You get a little bit of both of those things in these two men. And so they're meeting there. The sacrifices of the law had all kinds of say about death and burial and resurrection. And the prophets spoke about the coming glory of the Lord. Amen? So you have the full picture. You have everything God is, all that God wants from us, and then everything that God wants to do for us in these two men. And so as Jesus meets with them, he says, look, guys, this is, this is what I am proposing to you. That one day I'm going to take care of all this. We're going to blend Moses and Elijah together. It's all going to be okay. Because I'm going to do away with the old covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant in my own blood. I'm going to make sure that when you say yes to me, it's all inclusive. It does everything. That, that one who is Jesus question. That's why the book of Galatians says that the law has been abolished. That's why Paul wrote the book of Romans to the Romans. He's he's like, guys, look, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You you see, what he was saying was, this is what you guys knew. I'm going to do something that is new in EW. This is what you had learned in the past. This is what I want you to learn going forward. That there's going to be a new covenant. And it's not going to be one that entails the keeping of the law, it's going to be keeping the Spirit. For in the Spirit there's liberty. Peter and James and John kind of seem to have slept through the whole thing. Peter in his normal style blurts out, hey, it's good that we're here. And so God, I think, kind of to set Peter back a little bit, breaks in. 
the glory cloud come. I think it was the same glory cloud that met the children in the wilderness. I really do. I think it was the same light that shone from the tabernacle. And these guys got to see it. And then just as quickly as it came, so that nobody be wandering around, well, you know, let's go up on the mountain. Because you can imagine. And I think that's why we don't know the exact location of the Mount of Transfiguration. Can you imagine what people would be doing if they knew where that was? I'm going up there. I'm going to meet with God. One of the interesting things about the land of Israel, everywhere that Jesus might have been, there's some kind of you know convent, covenant, temple, church. There's something there to where people can go and kind of worship the spot. You go to the Sea of Galilee, there's a church where the Cove of the Sower is. There's a church where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. There's a church on the Mount of Beatitudes. There's a church on the Mount of Temptation. There's, you know, just on and on and on and on. And so imagine if word got out, hey, well, the glory of the Lord is on that mountain. People would just be up there 24-7 going, okay, glory. And so the Lord, as quickly as he came, that glory went away. And I think that's why the book of Hebrews is so important to the body of Christ. If you read it, the spirits of just men were made perfect. Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. Amen? There in Hebrews chapter 12, a kingdom which cannot be moved. You see, their, their kingdom was kind of getting moved at that point in time. But Jesus was going to bring a kingdom that couldn't be moved. Heaven and earth couldn't move Jesus from going to Jerusalem. Heaven and earth couldn't conspire together to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Because it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning, God, that has yet to make that confession that is necessary. Uh, that in fact you are the Lord of heaven and earth and that you came to this earth to cleanse us, to make us whole, to make us right with Father God. Lord, you sacrificed your life in our place, that you alone are the only begotten Son, the only one, not one of many, just one of one, Lord, the King of kings. We pray that you would just convict and convince of that truth and God before they leave this building that they would pray and just ask to receive you, Lord, into their lives. For it is with the confession of the mouth that one makes that confession unto repentance, which brings about salvation. And so, Lord, we thank you that it is that simple. But we need to have the real Jesus. And so, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for this passage, God. Pray that it would speak to us throughout the week. Bless us as your children, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.